How do we know that the Bible is reliable? How do we know whether the words we have in our Bibles are the words that were written? And how do we know that the words that we have describe real historical events? In the last episode of Thinking Theology, we looked at the reliability of the Old Testament, both in terms of the manuscripts that we have and the external archaeological evidence that gives us confidence in the historical events described in those manuscripts. In this episode and the next episode of Thinking Theology, we're thinking about those same questions for the New Testament. Next time, we'll be thinking about how we can know whether the events in the New Testament really happened. This time, we're thinking about whether the manuscripts of the New Testament are a reliable record of what was first written, or have they been changed over the centuries? Hi, my name's Carl Denick. I'm a pastor, theologian, writer, and Bible College lecturer. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How can we be sure that what we have in the New Testament is what was written by the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life? How do we know that it wasn't changed or embellished by later Christians looking to dress things up a bit? We've seen in previous episodes that we have access to a number of key early manuscripts of the New Testament. We have access to early fragments. Those tell us about how early the various New Testament books existed. For example, the earliest piece of the New Testament we have is a piece of papyrus called P52, It contains a few verses of John and is dated to the early 2nd century. The earliest complete manuscript of the whole New Testament in one volume is what's called Codex Sinaiticus, or Aleph to cool people in the business. It dates to the middle of the 4th century, and it even has its own website, codexsinaiticus.org. You can check that out if you're desperate. Another important one is Codex Vaticanus, which is a nearly complete version of the New Testament, also dating from the middle of the 4th century. Some of it is missing, unfortunately, because of damage. Although Sinaiticus is the earliest complete copy of the New Testament, we do have earlier copies of many of the parts of the New Testament. We've met P45 and P75 in previous episodes. They contain remnants of the Gospels and Acts and many of Paul's letters. And there's lots of other papyri as well. The numbers of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament is pretty extraordinary compared to what we have for the Old Testament, but also compared to what we have for any other historical document. For example, for Tacitus, an early Roman historian living at about the same time as Jesus, we have about three manuscripts, and the oldest of which is from the 9th century. In contrast, for the New Testament, we have nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts, with the earliest being within about 100 years of the life of Jesus. Because of the huge numbers of manuscripts, the manuscripts that we have are typically broken down into three categories. There are the papyri. Those are generally the earliest copies of the New Testament. There are over 100 of those. The dates of the papyri range from the 2nd century to as late as the 7th century. There are the so-called uncils, 
which is a strange name, but it refers to manuscripts that were written in capital letters. They tended to be more carefully executed, so Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus are unseals. Then there are the so-called minuscules. They're called that because they use small letters in a kind of running writing that was developed in about the 9th century. The unseals tend to be earlier, dating from as early as the 3rd century to as late as the 10th or 11th century, after which the minuscules took over. They date mainly from the 12th to 14th centuries. Those later manuscripts might not seem that useful, but because of the sheer quantity of the New Testament manuscripts, one of the things that scholars can do is identify families of manuscripts by relating those manuscripts together into families and working back through history, they can gain some understanding of how those families of texts developed and so understand what is the most likely original wording. But as with the Old Testament, it's not only Greek manuscripts that are important. The New Testament was also translated into other languages, and those translations or versions as they're called provide independent families of textual traditions. Just like when one child in a family moves overseas and loses contact with their family, over time that child and their family will develop independently of each other. And in the same way, that was true of versions of the New Testament. So differences between the language versions and the original Greek can tell us how much the Greek copies have changed, if at all. So as well as the original Greek, we have versions in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, Gothic, Armenian, Georgian, Ethiopic, Old Slavonic, as well as some others. Finally, one other source of information about the reliability of the New Testament text comes from the quotations taken from it by early authors. Like many modern Christian authors, ancient authors would often quote from the scriptures. In fact, Quite remarkably, the scholar Bruce Metzger notes that the quotations of the New Testament by early Christian authors is so extensive that nearly the entire New Testament could be reconstructed just from those quotations. But again, like with the ancient versions, those early Christian quotations are a particularly helpful kind of evidence because those early Christian works were copied and disseminated independently of the copying of the New Testament. That means those works can provide a semi-independent window into what the text of the New Testament was in its early history. But the real question is not so much how many manuscripts we have, but what those manuscripts tell us about the reliability of the New Testament text. After all, in some ways, the more manuscripts you have, the more differences you would expect, especially given that those manuscripts were copied out by hand. I know that I'm often not very accurate when it comes to copying things out. So what do the differences between manuscripts show us? Well, the New Testament scholar and leading textual critic Dan Wallace estimates that of all the differences between all the manuscripts, about 70% are simple spelling errors. After that are more significant changes, which don't really affect the meaning. So things like changing the word order around. You can change the order of words in Greek without it causing problems, generally speaking. Then there are changes that do affect the meaning, but aren't even remotely convincing. So for instance, Wallace gives the example of Luke chapter 6, verse 22. It says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. 
Now, there is one lonely manuscript from the 10th or 11th century that leaves out the words because of the Son of Man. Sure, there's a possibility, I suppose, that it could be the only reliable manuscript, but that is pretty unlikely. Finally, there are the changes that do affect the meaning and could be possible. Wallace estimates that those amount to about 1% of all the variations we have. But when you consider all those variants, none of those variants affect a key biblical doctrine. As Wallace notes, these variants do affect what a particular passage teaches, and thus what the Bible says in that place, but they do not jeopardize essential beliefs. That's because doctrine and meaning in general is not conveyed by a single word in isolation that might be wrong or right. Instead, doctrine and meaning are conveyed by words in the context of sentences and in the context of letters or books and in the context of the whole New Testament and indeed in the context of the whole Bible. That broader context restricts what words or meanings are or are not plausible or sensible or meaningful. For example, you have probably got text messages from people before with lots of spelling mistakes and even words that have been autocorrected to be something entirely wrong. Often even in a very short message though of one or two sentences, you can work out what the mistake is and hence what the correct meaning is. And the same is true with the mistakes in copying the New Testament. But perhaps the two largest differences in the New Testament relate to the end of Mark and a passage in John chapter 8. If you open your Bible to the end of Mark, you'll find something puzzling and perhaps a bit unsettling. In the NIV 2011, for example, after Mark chapter 16 verse 8, there is a line and then the words, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verse 9 to 20. Then verses 9 to 20 are printed in italics. Now, it's not just the NIV that does that. You'll find it in the ESV as well as many other versions. And if you turn to John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery, you'll find the same kind of thing. It says John chapter 7 verse 53 to 8 verse 11 is not found in the earliest manuscripts. The likelihood is that both of those passages are not original and that they were added later. Now, it might seem that the existence of those two discrepancies undermines our confidence in the reliability of the New Testament manuscript, but in an odd way, they don't actually do that at all. Instead, what they do is confirm the confidence we can have in other parts of the New Testament. That's because what they demonstrate is that a significant change in the textual tradition is noticeable and detectable. What they show is that when someone decides to add a little bit to the text of the New Testament, it leaves a trail behind that can be detected. For instance, with respect to the ending of Mark, doubts about its authenticity extend back into the early centuries after the New Testament. The early Christian Eusebius could write that in his day, the best copies of Mark didn't contain those last verses. With the story of the woman caught in adultery in John's Gospel, the story is missing from a wide range of the earliest manuscripts, and where it is included, the copyists marked it with an asterisk or something similar to that to indicate that they weren't really sure about its reliability. 
In other words, what both those passages show is that insertions and deletions from the biblical text have not gone unnoticed. And the historical evidence gives us good information for making a reliable decision about what belongs and what doesn't. But with all those manuscripts and differences, you might be wondering what manuscript your Bible uses. Generally speaking, most English Bible translations use what is called an eclectic text. That is, the underlying text is not one single manuscript that is seen to be more reliable than all the others. Rather, scholars have worked out what the text should be on the basis of the best available evidence from all the manuscripts. On my shelf and on my computer, I use a version of the Greek text that has notes at the bottom of the page that tell me if there is a significant variation in the text on that page. Generally speaking, there are not many issues, and the issues often relate to just a single word or maybe a few words rather than a whole sentence or a whole phrase. But as well as listing the issues, it also gives the various bits of evidence that support the different possibilities. For example, in my Greek Bible on one page in Galatians, it notes two possible errors. In the first case, it's the word for some people in Galatians chapter 2, verse 12. The question is whether that should be some people or someone. The second possible error is related to that, and it's whether the verb in the same verse should be plural or singular. That is, they came or he came. The two issues are related. If it is some people, then it must be they came. If it's someone, then it must be he came. But the context of that passage strongly suggests that it is they, not he, and some people, not someone. Moreover, there's good support in the different manuscripts for that reading. And to be honest, irrespective of all that, whether it's he or they, it actually makes surprisingly little difference to what Paul is saying in Galatians. Now, the main eclectic text that is used most commonly is what's called the UBS 5 or NA28. They're really the same thing. And most well-known English Bibles are based on that. So translations like the NIV, the ESV, and so on. But as well as that, there are two other kinds of Greek text. One is called the majority text. It's called that because instead of weighing the value of the evidence for different words, they simply follow something called the Byzantine text type, which was a kind of standard text that developed later in the history of the church. But an examination of all the different kinds of manuscripts that we mentioned earlier suggests that there's not really any good reason to prefer that family of texts. To be honest, I don't know of any English Bible versions that use the majority text. But there is another version of the Greek text which is more common than the majority text, though less common than an eclectic text. And it's known as the received text or the textus receptus. The received text is based on the rather strange idea that the Greek text that was available at the time of the Reformation and that formed the basis of versions like the King James Version was a supernaturally preserved text. In other words, God somehow made sure that the reformers had the best Greek text available in their day. It's a very strange idea, though, because it privileges the Reformation and versions that came out of the Reformation, like the King James Bible. It 
privileges those above virtually every other language version ever created before or after the Reformation. For instance, what about the early versions like the Syriac or the Latin and Coptic versions? It helps to know about the received text because the King James and the New King James translations are based on the received text. And there is among some Christians a misguided conviction that they are the only reliable Bibles because they're based on the received text. You might be wondering whether there are significant differences between the received text and the eclectic texts that are commonly used. The main one that is often noted is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. The received text, as translated by the New King James, has there, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. But in the eclectic text, that verse is missing the words, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Those missing words are handy, though, because they have been used by some people as a proof for the Trinity. They mention together the Father, the Son or the Word, and the Holy Spirit. The problem is that the words are almost certainly not authentic. There is very, very strong evidence that they were added much later. The fact that they weren't originally part of 1 John is also suggested by the fact that the verse was never used by the early Greek church fathers in disputes over the Trinity, which is strange because you would think it would be a hands-down winner. It's important to say that the doctrine of the Trinity, though, doesn't hang on that one verse. The doctrine of the Trinity is all over the Bible. It's in the Old Testament in shadow, and it's written on almost every page of the New Testament. Not only that, The doctrine of the Trinity is the linchpin of the doctrine of salvation. The whole story of the Bible would fall apart without the Trinity. But the existence of missing verses and variant manuscripts can create uncertainty and distress for Christians who've never been told about the reliability of the Greek New Testament. The result is that many people reflexively take up the position that the King James Version or the received text must be the true authoritative text of God. They do that because they want to have certainty about the text that they have in their Bibles. But really, as I said, there's no good reasons to hold that position. And there's no good reasons to be afraid that the text that we have in the NIV or the ESV, or an eclectic text, is a text that we should be unsure about. Yes, God has preserved the text of the Bible through history, but he hasn't done it by magically selecting one text that existed at one point in history, at the time of the Reformation. He's done it through the ordinary processes of history, through the preservation of lots of early Greek texts, lots of versions of the New Testament in other languages, lots of quotations of the Bible by early Christians and so on. And together, those different things work to give us enormous confidence that the text we have in our Bibles is the text that was originally written by Jesus' disciples, by the early apostles and their co-workers. Well, that's it for this episode of Thinking Theology. Please join me next time as we think about the historical reliability of the New Testament. How can we know that the events recorded in the New Testament are real historical events? Please join me then. Thank you.